0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Jack West. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Tatiana Prowell. Dr. Prowell is an associate professor of oncology in the breast cancer program at the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins Under Armour Breast Health Innovation Center. She's also the breast cancer scientific liaison at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So welcome, Tariana. It's great to have you here. Thank you
1: so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So in addition to all of these other things, you also serve as the 2020 ASCO Annual Meeting Education Committee Chair. Can You talk about what that has been like with so much change, pivots in the last few months and going to a virtual format. How you think things went with the annual meeting converting rapidly to a virtual format and then the plans for the virtual program that's happening in August?
1: Sure. It certainly has been a challenge. As everything has been with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've had to change everything we do and, and all of our plans were effectively unmade by this virus. I think we were very fortunate that the uh, Cancer Education Committee, which was the one that I was leading, had been established quite some time ago and had developed a lot of really terrific educational content for the annual meeting. And so really, from the standpoint of the part of the program that I was in charge of, it was about how to ensure that we still deliver the same excellent annual meeting experience without the in person aspect of it that's so essential to the meeting so for us it was about deciding which content could continue to go forward as planned obviously traditional education sessions where we have a chair and and three speakers could go forward essentially as planned one challenge is that when we're not all in the room together, we don't have people stepping up to the microphone and asking questions, and so that is a thing that we have been thinking about: is how do you preserve that spirit of exchange of ideas and of immediate peer review from the floor, if you will, after presentation? And and that's something that we've been working on. There is a chat function, as you're probably aware from having attended the scientific program. There is a chat function that allows people to be commenting and and raising questions in real time as the broadcast sessions are playing and and that way participants can interact with one another and we've encouraged speakers and chairs of sessions to be present for those to be able to be a part of the chat even though the sessions are being pre-recorded we did have some sessions that unfortunately needed to be removed from the education program because they simply weren't going to be able to be done in the same spirit as we had originally hoped you know for example we had some panel discussions that really would have been very challenging to conduct the way we had planned to do them with a lot of audience engagement and back and forth between the members of the panel and a, and a moderator things like ticketed sessions and so on you know those are the value of those really is sitting down in that very small group venue with someone. And so some of those sorts of sessions had to change. I think that other sessions that we've retained, I'll be curious to see how the atmosphere is of them. So I love Asco Voices so much. You know, these brief TED style talks about any any of a number of things in oncology. And they're always so powerful and they normally take place take place in the Airy Crown Theater. And so we're still having those. Uh, They'll be recorded and they'll be part of the education program in August. And the stories are as compelling as they were, but I still think there's something just magical about sitting together in the audience and hearing those. And I hope that we can still have that experience, even if we're distanced from one another. The virtual program, I thought, went very well. There were, of course, the technical hiccups, which were related to just a tremendous amount of traffic to the website. On the first day, we, we ended up with uh, more than two and a half million session views uh, in the scientific program, so the amount of traffic to the website was was really um, profound. But you know, nonetheless, we still had all of the oral presentations go on as planned and poster discussions go on as planned, and obviously a mix of both uh, on demand and and broadcast sessions. I felt like the amount of interaction during the broadcast sessions was really excellent. But I I have to confess that I think part of why that experience was so positive for me and probably for you as well is that we are on Twitter with a lot of our friends and colleagues. And I wonder how the experience was for people who don't use social media in association with conferences. That's something that it's harder to capture. And I'll be very curious to see in the evaluations how that turned out.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I would just say, and I really agree with you that obviously one of the Biggest losses is the interpersonal connections of, you know, being part of an audience together and the energy in the room when something memorable is presented and you're all part of it together and chatting with neighbors sitting alongside you, but also the chance encounters, meeting people who you know primarily, if not exclusively, from social media or by reputation, some other way, and then meeting at the at ASCO itself, the discussions with your colleagues over coffee or dinner or something, those are not as easy. And even though many of us, and I suspect you also had some Zoom discussions with with friends and colleagues, it's not the same kind of one-on-one or kind of intimate discussions that the live meeting lends itself to just in all of the the bumping into each other that happens. And of course, also the the reunions with people you haven't worked with in 10 or 15 years. So you missed that, but yeah. there were also real gains. I think that this was a, an opportunity to see a poster and get a four minute summary of it from the author, from the presenter without being seven people back behind uh, a bunch of uh, of uh, people, you know, from Wall Street, crowding the the poster session, or just a what felt like a scrum, and so you yeah. don't have that physical fatigue of walking around with your bag for hours at a time, or having to go from S one hundred B to D two for consecutive sessions, and you can really consume the content in a way that at least if the technical issues are overcome, which I think are very feasible if we just stagger the content in the future. You know, for many people, I think it made it more possible than ever to follow, internalize, and process the actual material being presented. It just didn't have the the interpersonal connection or it got shifted to Twitter for many of us. And I agree with you that you know, it's, it's really... Uh, Almost was a necessity to coexist together symbiotically, and uh, though there is the capacity to ask questions, but you know the the opportunity for people from all over the world, without prohibitive cost, to get access to this information, I think had many true benefits. It wasn't just a consolation prize compared to the live program, and of course was the the only social responsible thing to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are definitely things that that I think we learned uh, that will be valuable to the education program, which is happening on, on August 8th through 10th, but it'll also be valuable to future virtual conferences of all types. I think that the recording by the poster author describing their poster was absolutely essential for the virtual format, but I think it's also Something that's so obvious. I can't believe we we haven't been doing it always and I can't imagine that we will ever go back to not having that you know, I would love to be able to Walk up to a poster with my phone and scan a code and have my headphones on and listen to a four-minute summary of the poster I think you know, you're right that the poster sessions often are very crowded the the poster presenters maybe. Just inundated with people who have questions, and you can stand there for a very long time, hoping to ask a question or trying to get in on, you know, halfway through on the middle of of a poster being described. So, if you could have that common material just available to people on demand, almost like the way you walk through an art museum, you know, with you know with a listening device, and, and as you walk up to things, you're able to hear about the painting or something. I think that that is really an innovation that's worth keeping. So that that will stay. I'm very attracted to the idea that a virtual meeting can engage a different and broader group of people. You know, we have a lot of people that cannot, for one reason or another, uh travel to the annual meeting. We have people who who are patients or patient advocates who may not be able to afford the travel at the time of a, you know, a surge in cost um, of hotel rooms and so on. We have people who are caretakers for people with cancer that can't get away we have trainees that may not have time off or may not have funding we have you know the 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 person who always has to stay behind and cover for the whole group we've got dual physician families you know who may be both oncologists so there are a lot of people that that may really be very interested in coming but unable to be present and having a really robust virtual meeting even if you have a face to face meeting having a really robust virtual meeting as well i think is something that we should not we should never give up we should keep that Um, We should keep that going forward. And I think a challenge that we did an okay job of, but again, I suspect it it was a better job for those of us who are actively engaging with one another on social media, but we need to figure out how to make the audience feel connected to one another. I think that's going to be the real challenge. And I'm thinking about this already for for the August meeting, and I have the luxury of going second here. Dr. Johnson did such a wonderful job with the scientific program, and I'm glad to go after her in the sense that i get a couple more months to think about mine but she's a tough <laughs> act um she's a tough act to follow for sure i do think that there are things though that we will we will discover are worth keeping you know the other thing that i think is uh, it's worth mentioning is that if anything and i know i say this a lot to my own kids uh, we've become very dependent on devices and you know i spend a lot of time telling my kids as i'm sure you probably do as well to get off the phone or to get off the iPad or to, you know, set that down and eat dinner and look at the people who are next to you. And if anything, with this pandemic and people being in quarantined a lot, I think we've been in quarantine a lot. I think we've been forced to be incredibly dependent upon devices for connectedness. And so we've gotten better at it. And at the same time, we've also really come to appreciate uh, actual face-to-face human contact and with the annual meeting falling a few months into quarantine, I, I think people were kind of ready to gather, maybe even more than usual. So, so hopefully at the end of all this, we'll really appreciate that there's value to setting down our phone and, and you know, talking to people face-to-face. That's, that's one positive that I hope will come out of this entire terrible global pandemic is that we appreciate sitting down face-to-face with people again in a way that we've maybe not in a very long time.
0: Well, I I agree, but I would also say a few things. One is that, you know, for for whatever hiccups there have been and learning processes that need to evolve, we need to remember that live meetings have been around for, for centuries, but virtual meetings have been around for a few months, and we are all really learning by necessity as we go. And I think we will get better and better at it. Some issues such as the connection of, of the the folks who are viewing and questioning and, and just part of the experience, I think, is harder than disseminating the information across time and space. But, you know, we, we have time uh, and we're, I think, learning quickly how to do that compared to really the... Uh, the approach that we've had for a very long time, which in some ways is somewhat inefficient, certainly cost inefficient for the requirement of people coming uh, from, from all over and the high cost of hotels and the going back and forth. And it's, and it's kind of a physically demanding experience for people. I think everyone comes back from ASCO incredibly exhausted only to find that they now need to make up for their time being away. You know, so this was a different experience and uh, less intense, but but just not not shouldn't be really considered the exactly the same thing. So, I I, and and I don't think it's going as you said. I I think there are certain things that we learn from that should be perpetuated over time and not just put away because you you, they aren't of necessity maybe in a year.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that. I think that's right. One group that I worry about a little bit are the people who um, had, you know, for example, posters that were not part of a discussion, and I, I do think that maybe those got less traffic. I, I haven't seen that data yet, but that's just my sense based on Twitter is that there was a lot of discussion of the content that was happening on a scheduled basis. You know, people were pretty tuned in on those days. There was a lot of chatter that you know real time corresponded to what was being broadcast i worry a little bit about the posters the non discussed posters that maybe those didn't get as much as much traffic as they would have in a physical space and you know that's that's a disappointment uh, obviously for anybody who had a poster you know those they've all put a lot of a lot of time and effort into that and and my heart particularly goes out to trainees and to Um, Some patient advocates who submitted posters or advocacy organizations and junior faculty, you know, who are so pleased to have a poster maybe for the first time. And then they don't get that experience of standing there and having people walk by. And and maybe the poster doesn't even get visited as much virtually because you just don't see it. it. You know, if you if I'm walking through the breast you know poster discussion session i'm going to look at everything if if i'm looking at those things online maybe i'm going to prioritize and i don't view every last thing and i think that a lot of other attendees probably had the same approach so i you know my heart does go out to the people who who did the work on those posters and then didn't really get the traffic and I, and i think it's a loss for science too you know when you see those i'm sure you've had the same experience of walking through posters and thinking oh that's terrific i have a data set where i could actually ask the same question or Um, Or that gives me an idea for a research project or that gives me an idea for, you know, a question that we should ask in an ongoing trial that we should think about once it's completed. So I I do think that there's a lot of real-time idea generation from walking through the poster sessions and I don't think that's the same if they're just things on on a screen to click. So you don't have that interaction with the poster author. You don't have that interaction with other people standing there looking at the same thing. Um, And therefore helping you to realize that, you know, here are three people reading this poster, we might all be able to collaborate on something. You lose that. And I don't know how we fix that. That's a real challenge for virtual meetings. And I'm...
0: I I think your point's very well taken. I have talked with some other colleagues about the kind of information kinetics of the live meeting versus the virtual one with the same speculation that the typical internet-based winner takes all, or at least winner takes most in a very asymptotic way is operating, was operating for virtual ASCO in a way that was more concentrated on the highest impact stuff than, and just didn't get distributed in the way that you say. And I think that's a point very well taken, but there may be ways to structure this that could feature the posters that were not in discussion groups released at a different time et cetera, that you know there if you take out the travel component then all of a sudden it isn't imperative for everything to be released at the exact same time because you you don't have to so i think that we can now step back and ask you know, whether we don't need to try to mimic the structure of the live meeting in the ways that that make it suboptimal for virtual but you also i know that you're deeply committed to mentorship and uh, training, the Vail workshop. I presume that is also going to be virtual if it's happening this summer. And can you talk about at Hopkins, at uh, perhaps even at FDA, but through Vail, are there ways to salvage the training and mentorship experience, or is this going to really shortchange people who are doing this now? You already mentioned the kind of letdown of of doing a having a presentation, but not getting to do that in front of a big room or having people come up to you at the poster. But you know, how how do you see ways to ameliorate this and and still have patient have uh, have trainees? gain experience and develop their careers this way.
1: Yeah, I'm deeply worried about this. I'll be very honest with you. I, you know, uh, I think that our, our trainees um, from the fellow level all the way down to the medical student level are feeling so disconnected from one another. I, I actually read, there was a, there was a commencement ceremony called Stemencement, which was a giant online ceremony intended at people graduating from any Um, health STEM program, anything from medical school and nursing school, dentistry school, and so on. And and it took place about a week or so ago. And there were a lot of different people who spoke in that or, or gave brief remarks. I read a part of a Maya Angelou poem called Continue In It. But afterwards, it happened live. And afterwards, several of the medical students who had put this together I had set up a zoom for many of the people who had spoken or or provided some sort of content for it and i called in and one of the medical students said it's so great to have you here i haven't actually seen an attending in a few months and i just thought gosh what would it be like to be a trainee and not see an attending at all for months during the school year so I do think that they're struggling and we're all struggling to figure out how best to do education with, with trainees right now. I know that I've been involved in some Zoom calls with groups of of fellows that I mentor and I'm going to be doing some online teaching over Zoom as well, but it's just not the same. It's just not the same experience, you know, from the standpoint of the Veil workshop. And, and by the way, I have rotated off the Veil workshop faculty, so I'm not speaking in any formal fashion here, but just reflecting on this as someone who was on the faculty for several years, that would be extremely difficult to deliver the same experience uh, at a distance because the power of the Veil Workshop really is in capturing every last person that you need to get a protocol you know, from the concept stage to an IRB-ready product in you know five or six days and it's only made possible by the fact that you have everyone together in one building 24 hours a day Frankly working most of the 24 hours, you know if if you don't have Biostatisticians there or you know a pathologist there or an advocate there or a clinician there or basic scientist there You're missing people That you're then going to need to go circle back and find that someone who's got the expertise to weigh in on this so you could certainly still assemble all of those people and, and try to do it at a distance, but I think really what works about it is the fact that you are all there in one space working around the clock together. You know, one of the things that's so special about Vail is that they tend to take people who are fairly senior in their field as faculty and would not in ordinary circumstances be able to just shut down every other Source of of um, distraction, you know, anything else that would demand their attention for almost a week, and focus on developing a, a dozen protocols in their protocol development group. I think one of the challenges that the the virtual um, ASCO meeting faced, and and every virtual conference will face, and certainly something like the Veil workshop, if you tried to do it, would face, is that right now we are not only not on site, we're in our regular lives with very irregular circumstances. So we've all got our children home with us. Very few people have childcare. Certainly anyone who's dependent upon a daycare in most states doesn't have a place that their kids can go. Most summer camps have been canceled. Many people are not having, you know, in-house help like a a live out nanny come and go due to concerns about, about the coronavirus. And so you've got people trying to do their regular work, but Without any of the things that normally make our regular work possible So I think that that is an additional challenge for viewing the meeting and it would be an additional challenge for veil You know If I try to conceive of doing what I ordinarily did I wouldn't have even been able to do what I did as faculty there uh, For a week if my family came with me and stayed in the room Let alone if I was here in my house where you know all sorts of things are going on in the background and school's not even occurring so I think that's another thing we have to contend with is, you know, I know that even myself as invested as I am always in the ASCO annual meeting, but especially this year being the education chair, even I had to to stop watching and listening to certain presentations because something happened with my kids that demanded my immediate attention. And so I would just have to come back and watch that. And the question is, do you have time to go back and watch it? You know, and that's the challenge for the trainees, I think, as well, is, you know, so they have a poster there and maybe you say, oh, I'm gonna go and watch, I'm gonna go look up all of the people I mentor, I'm gonna go look up all their posters. When am I going to get back to that? It's a real challenge with all the regular work we have in the background and all the additional family stuff and and challenges of potentially two spouses working at home simultaneously with competing meetings. You know, there's a lot. So um so the summary is that I'm deeply worried for our trainees. I I really I think we need to ask them because I I feel like I'm talking about this a lot with my faculty colleagues, and maybe we're not asking them enough. What is it that you actually need from us? I'm concerned about their ability to be able to complete their training on time and be ready to be independent. You know, I'm not ordinarily I would be seeing patients with my fellows in clinic. We're we're not doing that right now. We're doing visits over telemedicine, and the fellows. To date have not been a part of those those telemedicine visits. So there's just a lot from clinical training to other content of, of fellowships or residencies that's simply not happening. I hope that we don't have to get to the point of considering extending training at any of those stages of education, but we're a long way from having a vaccine. We're a long way from going back to normal life there may come a time that we have to ask ourselves whether or not people that began their training in the middle of this and maybe lose a year or two years of normal, you know, boots on the ground experience will be ready to be independent attendings at the conclusion of a normal fellowship period. I don't know that they will. It's going to be a real challenge. And yeah, I don't know what else to say. It's going to be hard. Well,
0: No, I think that's a very sobering thought. I think that one of the things that some of us are at least intermittently happy about is that life is not as partitioned when you're working from home. You can say hi to your spouse or your kids and, uh, and you know, not be totally away, but on the other hand, that is a double-edged sword. You know, you can see a patient from home, but it's it's not like the concentrated experience of working alongside each other and working alongside a trainee and getting that teaching experience for a concentrated period of time together. So that's interesting. And I, I, am afraid, and I think you're right, that the training experience has been kind of secondary and hasn't bubbled up as, as much of a priority as we should hope it will in the future.
1: Yeah. There there will be some attention to this, I know going forward, but I think it, it, it demands some um, some urgency.
0: One last question, and that is just obviously you are very involved in Twitter. I am as well. We were before coronavirus uh, left us physically distancing. Does it have a greater urgency value, or you know, how does the utility of social media and perhaps med Twitter in particular, change in this new world we're in?
1: You know, I think it's interesting. The I think that the pandemic has magnified everything that was good and bad about social media and Twitter in particular to begin with. So the value of Twitter, and in fact, the reason that I started tweeting myself about two or two and a half years ago now, is that you do have the ability to send an educational message or scientific message uh, broadly, and that anybody who has internet access can receive that in any part of the world. And I appreciate that so much about social media and and Twitter in particular, which is the one that I use for for professional purposes or medical um, information, so to speak. I appreciate the way that it democratizes science and it democratizes information. There's no question that I've had Many back and forth exchanges with both colleagues in other parts of the world and with patient advocates and and other people that it's almost it's almost impossible that that I would have had that same conversation with them absent twitter. we We likely never would have met. I never would have gotten their insight into a project or an idea or a paper. And so I appreciate that that value. I think the other thing that Twitter's been really, beneficial for during the pandemic is just being able to communicate at a pace that even comes close to rivaling the the pace of the pandemic. So you know the pandemic is growing exponentially our knowledge about this virus is growing exponentially, the research papers and so on. if you just look at the number of papers that we've seen released as preprints which have circulated very heavily on Twitter and generated a lot of what I think you would call um, transparent, crowdsourced peer review in real time, I think it's become clear that the standard publishing model doesn't work in the way that it needs to, to propagate information during a pandemic. We can't wait to send a, a manuscript out to peer reviewers, many of whom will say no, and then try to find other ones and then wait for one reviewer who still hasn't returned with comments, you know, there's no time for that. By the time you get that back, the information could be obsolete. The the field has moved on just because our our knowledge uh, of this virus changes so quickly. So, I think that Twitter's been very valuable there, but that's also the risk, right? So we've seen information propagate that was inaccurate. We've seen messages that were irresponsible be able to be broadcast very widely, and some of those done real damage. I think that. You know, if we think about the importance of having public trust during this period of time, where we're asking really unprecedented things of anyone who's currently alive, we've never told people you need to go in your house, um, not go to school, not go to work, not go to the store, and stay there. And we can't tell you how long you might need to stay there. I mean, it's really a, it's really just unimaginable to me even from six months ago that we we have done this and certainly in a country like the United States where there's such an independent spirit, the idea that everybody was going to collectively all go do this was kind of mind blowing and, and Twitter I think was helpful to be able to explain to the public and here's why you need to do this and here's why you need to keep doing it and here's why you need to keep doing it still. And here's when we think we might be able to stop doing this. You know, I think that it was really valuable. But when we have scientific misinformation, when we have conspiracy theories about medicine and science, when we have any of those sorts of things that damage the public trust, those can propagate to the far corners of the world. And it's really hard to regain trust. It's much harder to regain trust than to get trust at the outset. And so that that's a thing that I worry about. You know, you can't know who is seeing what you're posting. You of course know who follows you, although as you're aware and I'm aware, once you get to a certain number of followers, you actually don't really have a handle on who's following you anymore. I don't go through and look at notifications of who's following or read through the followers list. So I don't have a good handle on who's following me. And of course, a lot of people see your content who don't follow you. And so if something gets said that's incorrect or inaccurate, it's hard to know how to even go about fixing it. If you say something that's wrong in a journal, and there have obviously been prominent examples of that, uh, you know, in the news this week with retractions from from top tier journals um, of papers about COVID-19. If you say something that turns out to be wrong for whatever reason in a journal, there's an orderly process to correct that. You go back and you retract and you write an explanation and and so forth. And it's in the public record in a way that you have greater confidence people will see. I think if you say something that's just wrong on Twitter, even if you correct it, there's no assurance that the people who got the wrong message will get the right message now. That's really hard. So... So you know in all the ways that it's been good it's it's been terrible um you know it's like that it's like that nursery rhyme you know when it was good it was very very good and when it was bad it was horrid and i i think that that's a <laughs> that's been a good summary of twitter during the pandemic all that said i can't imagine getting through this pandemic without twitter i i don't know how anybody is practicing right now without twitter it's been really interesting talking to some colleagues of mine who are not in infectious diseases. So they, in ordinary times, would never be paying attention to a disease like COVID-19. But of course, it commands all of our attention right now because it's so important and it's disrupted all the rest of medicine. And when I talk to people that are, say, cardiologists or pulmonologists, friends of mine, if they're on Twitter, they're pretty well aware of what's going on with COVID-19. They have a good handle on the science. They, They recognized early on that, you know, people were developing thromboembolic events or they recognized early on that people were developing renal failure or, you know, so on. Things that if we if they were articles in journals, we probably wouldn't read them because they're just so far away from our own specialty work. When I talk to colleagues who are in these non-infectious diseases specialties and who are not on Twitter, it's really striking how much less knowledge most of them have about COVID-19 and the few who are the exceptions have been doing a lot of work scouring journals, but even then, I think mostly the knowledge that they have is based on articles that have been published in you know the top tier journals that that most people are likely to to receive and and maybe you' feel more obliged to read right now, just so that you're current they're not seeing the research that's being published in second tier journals, a lot of which has turned out to be extremely important and has really led to further important, larger scale studies. So I think it's been critical, but I'm curious to talk to my colleagues who don't use it to see how they feel like they're managing.
0: I feel like this is a very big topic. Uh, Frankly, we'll need to continue it. So perhaps we can have a part two in the future. I always enjoy talking to you.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Oh, no, thank you. And and thanks also to our listeners who are following Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all of our podcasts on our website, www.islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.